I'm John Atak, uh, as I always have been. And um, did, are you an Aaron or an Aaron? To me, those are the same. My mom always says Aaron, but I say Aaron. <laughs> okay, well, this is Aaron Smith-Levin, who is a very celebrated person, I may say, one of the few people who's really stood up against Scientology and taken all of those risks, which I understand very well, um, to get information out there to help people who've been involved and to slow down the depredations of the Scientology cult. So perhaps you could start by telling us a little about your background and how how you became involved with Scientology and how you became uninvolved. Sure. So I generally say I was born and raised in Scientology. I was four years old when my mom got into Scientology uh, in, in Philadelphia. There's only, there's only one Scientology organization in all of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware, and that's in Philadelphia. Okay. Um, isn't that funny? People don't realize, uh, people yeah. really don't realize how small Scientology actually is. Yeah, down to about 20,000 IAS members, I'm, I'm led to believe. It's tiny, yeah. tiny. It is for such a small organization that makes so much trouble and makes so much noise. Yeah. Um, so I was four when my mom got into Scientology. And she wasn't just like introduced as a, a public and dabbled for a while. She pretty much joined staff right away. Mm. Um, some of my earliest memories are being in the org and being in the nursery. Orgs had nurseries back then. Um, the nurseries ended up being much more trouble <laughs> than they're worth. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I was four years old when my mom got into Scientology, and I was 12 years old when I was taken out of school, public school, to do uh, to start working full time for Scientology, uh, which I did in Philadelphia, in Clearwater, Florida, in Los Angeles. Um, and, you know, working for Scientology in the first few years was really full time study. I mean, there was also a lot of manual labor involved in there and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But, but I was 15 years old when the full-time study part ended and it was, it was work, work. It was on post. Um, so from 15 years old to 26 years old, I was a staff member and a Sea Org member. And then when I was 26, I was in the Sea Org in Los Angeles. My wife and I got pregnant and we said, we're not having an abortion. So we left the Sea Org and we were still considered public in good standing until 2014, uh, which is when I got officially declared. And then, uh, and then my wife eventually did. Um, so I say 2014 is when I officially left Scientology. Uh, 2009 is kind of when my route out of Scientology began uh, mm -hmm. because of the Tampa Bay Times articles uh, about the senior executives who'd left Scientology and were speaking out about uh, the abuse at the international base at the hands of David Miscavige and things like that. Mm -hmm. So from 2009 to 2014 was kind of a, a gradual path out of Scientology. Yeah. And um, as you know, as you know, Scientology isn't really in the habit of getting rid of people. They will try to keep you and keep you and keep you and keep you until they realize that they can't. And then they, they say, well, get out of here. We never wanted you anyway, you piece of crap. And uh, so people ask me, well, what made you decide to leave? And I, you have to go, well, nothing really. I didn't actually want to leave. I, it, I, I wanted to stay even when I no longer believed. I mean, I wanted to stay even... Um, uh, but then you go, but what do you mean you wanted to stay? Um, because officially leaving Scientology means everyone you've ever known has to sever ties with you. And me no longer believing in Scientology did not mean I wanted that to happen. <laughs> you know, I was working for a Scientologist. So was my wife. All of our friends were Scientologists. Uh, our kids were going to a Scientology school. Uh, her whole family was Scientologists, brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, all that kind of stuff like there was no part of my losing my belief in Scientology that made me go, oh, yeah, I don't want to associate with anyone I've ever known my whole life. <laughs> so no, that, I was that, that is a truly terrible thing that, that the idea yeah. that your network of friends and relatives is now forbidden to you. That, of right. course, you know, I still miss people who've not been allowed to talk to me since 1983. You know, but there's still people that I'm fond of and would like to see again. So friendship doesn't end with a change in belief. Though, of course, if you're a Scientologist, it does, because it's not real friendship. Absolutely. So. Well, and that's why I was, um, in some respects, fighting so hard to stay in, oh. 
even though I didn't give a damn about Scientology anymore. And I didn't give a damn if my friends still believed in Scientology. Makes no difference to me. It's really Scientology who creates the framework of rules um, that brings these sort of conflicts into being where people have to make ridiculous choices. Um, and, you know, even before I was in my per personal conflict of, are they going to kick me out? Are they not? Am I going to, you know, bend the knee? Am I not? There was an earlier, um, earlier similar incident. <laughs> beginning. When, tell me when, <laughs> after they had declared my mom, uh, because she got declared for basically spreading around, um, basically talking poorly of David Miscavige. And there was the point of, were they going to insist that I disconnect from her or not? And I was making the argument for, you know, you really should let me just do the good roads, good weather stuff here. And I was even like, and you know, if that means I'm not eligible for any training or courses, by golly, that's okay with me. <laughs> um, let's just, um, I don't care if you put a big fat, you know, PTS type whatever label on me. But, you know, if you could just really not demand that I disconnect from my mother or else, that sure would make existence easier for her, easier for me. And let me tell you something, easier for you, I promise. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and, and they should have listened, let's face it. They should have listened. <laughs> Um, it, it is one of the reasons I take a certain amount of glee in uh, the work I do to shine a light on Scientology is because in the back of my head, I'm thinking to myself, you guys could have avoided all of this. You know that, right? You know, I gave you like 10, 10, op 10, 10 opportunities to uh, make this easier on all of us, including yourselves. Now, in retrospect, I mean, thank God they kicked me out. I mean, I wouldn't be where I am in life now if that hadn't occurred and, <clears throat> and and i can't say that if i was back in that time in that headspace that i would actually want it to occur again because it was it was all pretty quite devastating mm -hmm. um but things have turned out for the best it, it's it's fantastic not to live being spied on by your friends your employees your co-workers you know your employers it's 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 amazing that you get accustomed to that kind of stuff yeah that it just becomes normal that everyone in your life is spying on you for this, this entity. Um, it's wild stuff. And, and what did you, you know, what, what made you active publicly against Scientology? Um, what do you mean? Well, why did you choose to speak out? Why did you think, cause you knew the risks, I'm sure. Well, I'm trying to, well, I mean, I didn't take any of those risks until after I'd been like expelled. Is that what you mean? Or do you, is that what you mean? Yeah, it, it's just that many people, even if they're expelled, declared suppressive, will simply walk away, turn their back. Oh, on. yeah, that's not in my nature. <laughs> mine, mine neither. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I mean, that's probably just the best answer I can give. That is not nowhere in my nature. Um, but um, and but I'm, what I'm trying to remember is what's the first thing I did that could even be considered speaking out um so it's what's interesting is that even that wasn't something i set out to do if, I, if i'm recalling it accurately um and here's what i'm remembering so you know just before i got officially declared which occurred in 2014 just before that in late 2013 the guy that i was working for was a very prominent uh scientologist named kurt feshback yeah. and i was working for him in the uh, investment hedge fund investment research field huh. And Scientology, you know, he's a very, very important, he's a VIP in Scientology. They didn't want to put him in the legal uh, dilemma by declaring me while I still worked for him. Mm. So they gave him the heads up. And even though I'd been working for him for five years and the, the goal was for me to eventually take over for him, all of a sudden there were all these very important issues that needed to be addressed. Aaron was being too mean to the people who worked under him. Aaron you know, this, that, and then I got laid off and, and I actually recorded this meeting. Um, okay. I still have a recording of this meeting where they laid out this whole, you know, explanation for why we were going in this direction. And at the end of that meeting, I said, you guys know that I know everything you just said is total horseshit, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, 
you guys know that I know that Scientology has been in touch with you and has given you this opportunity to get rid of me so that I can't sue you for religious discrimination. Like you understand that, right? And they're like, Oh my God, what? how dare you? How could you think that of us? I was like, okay, fine. So he let me go. I was immediately forced, um, forced, but helped by others to go into business for myself in the exact same industry, doing hedge fund research. Um, and, and I had some projects early on that were a bit high profile and got a little bit of exposure and something was written about it, um, in Forbes magazine and somebody, and there was a mention, they asked me about Scientology and I said something about declining to talk about it. Now behind the scenes, I told the journalist, Nathan Vardy, I said, Oh God, I can't publicly comment on Scientology. I said, I've, I've already been declared, but my wife hasn't. And we're trying to navigate this process so that she doesn't have to lose her family. Mm -hmm. And if you publish something, it's going to, it's going to screw everything up. So please don't, yep. don't get into the Scientology stuff. And he was like, Oh my God. He's like, okay, I'll just put like de de decline to discuss it or something. Mm -hmm. Somebody sent this article to Tony Ortega and Tony put up a blog piece, basically trying to blow me out of the water. Like, <laughs> oh my God, look at the Scientology connection here in Wall Street. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and so, so I emailed Tony behind the scenes and I'm like, hey, dude, you fucking idiot. I'm the one that's been emailing you for like months and months and months, giving you all the secret <laughs> information. And he's like, oh, you should speak out publicly. You should speak out publicly. Now, as I sit here now, I do not remember if I then did some sort of a follow-up post with Tony or not. But that's how it started. Like I had no intention of being surprised. Here I am. Because my wife was still going through absolute hell. You know, I mean, even after, like she was still holding on to the idea that she was going to be able to keep this connection with her family. Yeah. And even after she officially got declared, she was still holding on to this belief that there was something that she was going to be able to do to salvage this relationship with her family. Mm. So I wasn't just in the background going, Hey, good luck with that. While you're worrying about that, I'm going to be over here making sure that never happens. Yeah. You know? So, um, I don't have a very specific memory and I'm sure I'm just forgetting something of doing something so-called going public until launching my YouTube channel seven years ago. And that was, and it's called Growing Up in Scientology. And the purpose of that was just to have a platform where second generation members could tell their unique sort of story and perspective. You have this whole, these whole generations of people who, who never even chose to be Scientologists and yet have come to form, you know, probably the vast majority of Scientologists that exist right now. And that's an interesting story because usually when someone's talking about their, um, joining Scientology, they have a lot to say about how they came to actually join Scientology. And yet people who were born into it don't really have that component to their story. No. Um, you know, and, and at that time, there just wasn't really a place where stories were being told that weren't being somehow curated and moderated by people who'd never been in Scientology. Yeah. And, um, and we were like, well, let's, let's just try something different. And even that it was interesting because the goal wasn't really, oh, let's expose this, let's expose that. The goal was let's um, tell a story from a different perspective. Hmm. Now, perhaps there was some, but 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 for, for years behind the scenes, I'd been giving information to Mike Rinder and Marty Rathbun and Tony Ortega. And I was happy to keep doing that forever. Like I did not pick this fight with Scientology. Um, now they, now you know that they would go, well, you did pick the fight by giving them information. And it's like, oh, whatever, potatoes, potatoes. But... <laughs> Um, and then of course there was the Scientology in the aftermath show. And that just came about because, you know, I'd, I'd become such good friends with Mike. And, and, and at that point, Mike was working for me in my hedge fund research business. So we were together, you know, five days a week, eight hours a day for a, a year or whatever it was. And then, um, and then, uh, the idea Leah had been, uh, talking with some production company about the idea of this television show. And that's how, You'll notice season one is basically, if you look at who's in the season one of the show, it's basically just Mike's friends because yeah. it was the lowest hanging fruit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's how all that came to be. It sort of was all relatively organic. Um, I, I feel like I didn't necessarily pick this fight or choose this path, but 
but as far as running away from these guys or ignoring them, it's like, nah. Once you see how the sausage is made, there's really not a lot to be afraid of. And um, sometimes it rubs people the wrong way when I say that because it's not true that there's nothing to be afraid of. But when you see how the sausage is made, you're like, this is a clown show, you guys. I'm not going to give anyone the um, uh, the excuse to be afraid of them. I'm going to try to give people excuses not to be afraid of them. Oh, but they'll do this and that to you. Yeah. But at the end of the day, what did it accomplish? Like, they've got a website up about me. Yeah. That's like people are endlessly entertained by that website. Who cares? It's never cost me a relationship. It's never cost me a client. It's never cost me a job. It's never cost me a minute of sleep. Like who cares about the website? Um, and I know everyone doesn't see it that way. And I don't, and I don't say it to mean nobody should ever be afraid of them or whatever. I guess it's like, they want you to be afraid. So don't do them the favor is kind of how I approach it. And, um, yeah. I, I know everyone doesn't see it that way, but, but look, you've been, you've been, you know, you've been right in the thick of it for almost 40 years or 40 years. I mean, yep. and maybe you would have a different story. Maybe, maybe sometime you can tell me, well, here's how they did screw me for real. And, and I, I I'm interested in that. Cause like, I know a lot of people have been destroyed or near destroyed. I mean, the story of Paulette Cooper is unfathomable. Yep. Um, and to be honest, I'm not sure I know very much about other people's other people who have stories similar to what happened to Paulette Cooper. I'm I'm not even sure I have much information about other people's stories like that. I, I think um, it's largely a matter of of how many people were speaking out and how much firepower Scientology had. And I think the internet changed everything. You know, so I started speaking out in 1983, and I had a pretty rough ride of it for 16 years. Um, because I was the only person in the UK saying anything. So it was very easy for them. And especially that I continued to live in East Grinstead until 1994. So anybody who was doing a so-called liability formula could come around and knock on my door. And, you know, we no had- No way. Yeah, we, we had all sorts of stuff. Um, yeah, people would turn up at 11 o'clock at night and, and, and tell me, you know, I had some guy telling me that I'd uh, broken up his relationship with his girlfriend. And yeah, you know, wow. I'd invite them in and talk to them because I, you know, I don't really follow their policies about not communicating with people. Uh, I'm not really frightened of communicating with people, and I think that's one of the horrors of Scientology that it makes people think, "Oh no, this person's suppressive. They'll have some malicious animal magnetism or or something that will cross over to me, some n theta." Um, I didn't have that, but this guy, I so I said to him, well, "Well, what's your girlfriend called?" And and he told me. I said, "I've never heard of her, let alone persuaded her to do anything." But they'd shout at me, they'd, you know, all sorts of stuff. I had uh, people with placards outside my house, which mm. was amusing because the pavement was only about three feet wide <laughs> and the wow. police would keep coming and moving them off. Um, all sorts of things. You know, bank accounts hacked. Um, I was sued and uh, bankrupted in totally by legal costs. They found things they could sue me for that I couldn't get legal aid to defend myself wow. on. And they beat me. We never went to trial on any issue. They beat me with all of the paper mountain that comes before the cases. So, yeah, back then it it was, you know, they could focus more. There were very few of us. You know, Jerry Armstrong, Lawrence Wallershine, Bob Penny, then Vaughan and Stacey Young came along. Uh, Jeff Jacobson. There are people who go way back and have, have been doing this for a long time. With the internet, suddenly there were thousands of people who could anonymously or theoretically anonymously post and a few people like yourself like tony ortega uh chris shelton um came you know karen de la carrier came out and said well we're going to talk about it and chris has said to me that that he's not been harassed at all and he's almost disappointed about it you know for me it was every day you know there'd be <laughs> something happening and there were private detectives involved and all sorts of things and i think that's very healthy i think that um you know, a lot of the problem with Scientology is that is exactly as you said the fear, and that uh, Jerry Armstrong pointed out to me when I first met him in '84 that fear was the tone level of the C organization. That people were terrified, as you say, you're being reported on. You've got to keep everything together. You mustn't say anything that can be taken against you. And far from creating superhumans with fantastic cognitive 
and emotional abilities, it's actually confining people and enslaving them psychologically. Um, how about the, the process of recovery from Scientology? Um, you know, some people are very resilient and they just walk away. I, I had no problems, but I also wasn't humiliated or abused. I was um, treated as a celebrity because I, I write and I paint and play music. I didn't make any money doing it, but I was treated as a celebrity. So there are a couple of times in nine years that I was shouted at and I shouted back and that's it. And then when I left and started hearing the stories that people had to tell about the rehabilitation project force and rice and beans diets and all of this sort of thing and seeing that so many people come away with some form of post-traumatic stress that there are things you know that have nightmares they won't sleep properly they'll be hyper vigilant they'll be reading subtexts into what people are saying to them um did have you, have, how have you found it that, that what seven eight years since since you you left well, I'm glad to hear you say you didn't have some big giant ex existential crisis or, you know, collapse or whatever, because I really haven't either. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> my time on staff and as a Sea Org member is a bit of a strange contradiction between strong belief and strong dedication on the one hand, and on the other hand, not really believing and thinking these guys need me more than I need them, but I'll stick around as long as I'm willing to. Yeah. Um, and I can tell different stories that, that highlight I, either sides of that coin. And, and they existed at the same time in a, in a weird way. Mm -hmm. There were so many, and this becomes, this really became obvious to me in a lot of the interviews and conversations that I've had with Chris Shelton, mm -hmm. because in many respects, he truly believed in Scientology much, much more than I did. Mm. And yet you could go, and yet I don't want to characterize myself as someone who didn't believe because the truth is I believed to a level where I never had to be handled to do anything. If I handled myself. Yeah, me too. So I believed it to such a level that like I was never someone who would go to someone else and go, um, I would never seek someone else to explain to me why I should do the thing I was being asked to do. I either wouldn't fucking do it or I would handle myself on why it was really the right thing to do. And then I would do it. Yeah. People, no one was pulling my strings. Mm -hmm. And even though I, you know, I never did much of the bridge. I never did pretty much any of the bridge. Um, and yet I was dedicating my life to delivering the bridge to others and that dedication alone indicates a certain level of belief. But John, there was a, a moment, it was one day when I was on post as the TechSec Asho, that I was waiting for course to get out. I was, you know, standing at the end of the hallway, waiting for course to get out. I was going to do some announcement to the student body. And I just reflected for a second there, just to myself. And I was like, you know, I've, I do this. I spend every waking hour doing, uh, getting these people who are in these course rooms to do what they're doing right now. But if I was in their shoes, if I wasn't a CERC member, if I wasn't a staff member and I was just Joe Public, would I ever spend one penny of my money or one minute of my time to come into these course rooms and read something L. Ron Hubbard wrote with a course supervisor you know, standing over my shoulder harassing me anytime I stared off into space or tapped my finger on the table? Not for a goddamn second, would I spend my time and money doing the things that these people are in here doing under my supervision? Now, you might think, well, geez, you must have left the Sea Org shortly after that, right? <laughs> no, I was in for like three more years. <laughs> this weird contradiction of like, you know, the, if I, the way I tell that story, you like, sounds like, it sounds like you barely believed. You're like, but I was there. Like, if I didn't believe, why did I stay for three more years? And it's this funny thing of like, I didn't like auditing. I didn't enjoy auditing. I didn't want auditing. I didn't want to deliver auditing to others. But I believed in the prison planet story. And I believed in the state of full operating Phaeton. Hmm. I believed that part of the story. Hmm. And so whenever, I, if I was struggling or not doing well on post, or should I leave? Should I not leave? I would literally sit down by myself and go, okay, 
just remember, like, why are we doing any of this? What is the purpose of any of this? What's the purpose of Scientology? What's this? And I would go, okay, yes, full OT, prison planet, you know, da, 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 da. Who cares about this hardship or this upset or this, you know, sacrifice or whatever, just, you know, stick on this. This is the right path to eventually get to where we want to go, even though you don't actually want to walk the path yourself. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, yeah, that sounds good to me. All right, let's go. <laughs> Like yeah. in, in, in some ways it sounds very small minded, like, geez, you're really sim- like, that's all it took. Um, but you can see that also on some level, I was even thinking about all of this probably to a greater degree than most people in my shoes were even would think about it. Like, like Chris believed in every, I'll give you an example. I knew if I was ever assigned to the RPF, I would never do it. And I would leave the Sea Org. And Chris, um, Chris told me he's like, "Oh no, I I was uh, I was such a I was a true believer that that not only did would would he agree to do the RPF, not only did he he would truly believe he deserved it." Yeah, that indicates a certain level of belief that I simply never had. Mm. I didn't believe in everything LRH wrote about PTSness. I could see the internal um, incoherence in his statements. Everything stems from PTSness. Oh, by the way, there's something called false PTSness and pretended PTSness. Oh, and by the way, one of the reasons you can appear PTS is you haven't studied enough Scientology. I'm like, there's a circular logic here that doesn't make any sense at all. And yet I would go, ah, who gives a shit? Um, and so I almost go, does that indicate a small-mindedness or does that indicate an ability to silo information and, and distinguish? I don't know. I don't know if these things I'm describing make me sound smart or really stupid. It just is makes it different than the experience of a lot of other people who I think had a much harder time when they were leaving Scientology because they did sort of have a bit of an existential, what do I believe? What do I not believe? What's true? What's not true? And I was, I'm kind of like, I was just there doing my job, guys. <laughs> I, I, beyond that, I wasn't all wrapped up in the, what do I believe? What do I not believe? Um, and I think uh, some of all of that is a function of the fact that I never decided to join Scientology. Yeah. I never decided Scientology was the answer for all my problems. Mm-hmm. It was a path that I was on that my mom put me on. Um, I didn't have a choice uh, other than the fact that, I mean, I was a child. You don't have a choice. You just, you just go where you're pointed, you know? Um, so I, I really am uh, sympathize or empathize or, or feel sorry for people who, who like um, were leaving Scientology for them really is more of an existential crisis. I've had phone calls from people. Uh, who I who I knew from Philadelphia, who you know, start watching my videos, or whatever. But they're still Scientologists. And this one guy called me up. He goes, "Oh man, you're really making my. I've been watching. I've been binge watching your videos all week, and you're really messing up my life, man. I don't know what to believe anymore. Um, except they're not laughing while they're saying it. No. And I kind of go, man, you don't have to pick what's true or what's not true. Like, I don't think of Scientology in terms of does it work? Does it not work? Is it true? Is it not true? Uh, I don't think of Scientology in those terms. There's no part of Scientology that I still use or apply in terms of things that actually require you to do something, meaning contact assists, nervous assists, locationals, uh, what have you. And people go, oh, is there any parts of Scientology you still believe? And that's funny because I go, I never thought of Scientology as something you were supposed to believe. So like if you go the ARC triangle, okay, is that a useful way of thinking about how to approach people or resolve conflicts? Yeah, that's a useful way of thinking about things, in my opinion. I'm never going to sit someone- It's also, however, not in (laughs) fact true and easy to disprove. So sometimes- depending. I mean, depending on what that even- For you, but- but the reality is that if you increase communication, you don't necessarily increase affinity. The example that Hubbard himself gives is that bullets are communication. And if somebody likes you more after you shot them, there's something wrong. So it's it's a heuristic, but it's a faulty heuristic. But Well, sure. And that's also based on or, or somewhat relies on the fact of does this thing 
do you have to think of this thing in some sort of a scientific, it, it always works if you apply it 100% of the time. I never thought of Scientology in, the, in that way. Like, like you just said, that like the examples you can like you can think of ways in which ARC doesn't work out the way Hubbard said, and you can think of ways in which it's probably an a useful way to approach people. And even though um, I'm using that as an example, if someone asked me for advice on how to deal with A, B, and C or whatever, never in a million years would I ever sit them down, sketch out the ARC triangle, or even mention ARC, or even use those terms, or anything. So is it something that sticks in my like? But I do feel that if I'm having to um, come up with a way or advise a person on how to approach a, a thing, in the back of my head somewhere is kicking around the ARC triangle, but I'm not going to use those words. I don't. I don't care enough about it to make it a thing. But if someone asks me, you know, if someone's in Scientology and like, oh, what's true, what's not true, that's where I kind of go. I don't think in terms of true or not true. I just think in terms of did that kind of make sense to me? And was it useful if I think in those terms? Like I just the ARC triangle just is an example of something that I can I think is useful when when used. Uh, it's useful if you want to think in those terms. And I might even still think in those terms, but you'll never hear me say those words because I don't care enough about those words or 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 about the ARC triangle as a thing. I mean, do you understand what I'm saying, right? I hope so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, I, and... there's, there's so much, there's so much in there that you see, for me, the sundering point, I left the Church of Scientology because I thought Hubbard was gone. He wasn't. This was 1983. It was very much, this was the last demented bit of his activity, but he was running it. But I thought he'd gone. And I thought that the, the Commodore's messengers, the watchdog committee, whatever, had taken over. And I did not like the, the new enforced disconnection policy. That was the particular thing in September 83. That was the last nail. But thinking about it, I then came to know so much about Ron Hubbard so quickly because I got Michael Lynn Shannon's material, which people have forgotten about now. Um, but he did an incredible research job and James Phelan before him in the 60s, Alexander Mitchell in the 60s, Paulette Cooper, they all dug in and found a bit more. And there was a simple idea in Scientology, and that is honesty is sanity. The road to truth must be trod with true steps. And what was absolutely clear to me was that Elwin Hubbard was a liar. He was a liar in that you didn't have to look to external sources like his college records and things like that, which, which are available. You could look to what he himself said and the contradictions within it. And they are, what he says is so replete with contradiction. You know, I crippled and blinded at the end of World War II in my philosophy in 65, handwritten. 1957, I think it is, communication and isness. On the 25th of July, I went down to Hollywood and beat up three petty officers. Okay, crippled and blinded at the end of World War II. Well, that's just 19 days later that he had in which to get crippled and blinded. In an interview he gave to Look magazine, November, December 1950, he says he never saw combat and uh, it had no war wounds. Really? Uh, yeah. And then you get the claims to being a nuclear physicist. There's a tape that he made. Uh, I think it's the 23rd of September 1950, Introduction to Dianetics, which they've actually released. It's been released since I started researching, but they've put it out there. And in it, he says, I flunked the course in atomic and molecular physics at George Washington University, and wow. which is what his grades say. But I realized he was lying. And if he was lying, then he shouldn't be trusted. And the next step for me was to say, I'm going to reject all of this, everything that I've been taught here. And I've done the data series course and all of this kind of thing. I'm just going to reject it all. And I'm going to then look at it piecemeal, bit by bit, and see if it's true. And I have to say that 39 years later, I've never once wanted to pick up the cans. It, it never. I, I, every bit of Scientology that I've examined, much of it I've been able to find where it came from. And Alistair Crowley is, is a major source for a great deal of it. Things like the birth engram, even go back to him. Uh, OTTR0 goes back to him. But looking at these, the people it came from, as Hubbard said, you usually find that the original source of material is better than somebody who's relaying it. And anything that's anywhere near useful in Scientology has a different origin 
and usually with somebody who understood it better than Hubbard. And Hubbard himself becomes very confused about what these things mean and contradicts himself along the way. The, the idea of, I think, you know, Freud created a whole system, a way of looking at human being, and Hubbard followed that. And because he had hypergraphia and couldn't stop talking and writing, he just kept trotting out this material. He also said that, that truth should be simple and that people, as they gain altitude in society, they become more and more confusing about their subject. When you look at Scientology, it's no single individual has ever created such a body of, of work. And it does not do what it claims to do. It, it doesn't certainly doesn't create a, a benevolent society. I had a friend who left about the same time I did, and he said he thought about what would the end phenomenon be of if the Sea Org took the world over. And he said, well, it would be upset, <laughs> disagreement. You know, this was not a functioning organization. This was a very badly run organization that mistreats all of its members. So if Scientology took the world over, it'd be more like North Korea, I think, than than uh, than paradise. Yeah, <clears throat> that's true. It's true. Uh, the fact that life in the Sea Org, conduct in the Sea Org, the way of dealing with people in the Sea Org is so unpleasant, um, no compassion, no empathy. The ends always justifies the means. The group is always more important than the individual. Um, and, you know, that is what the world would look like if Scientology took over the world. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's this, one of the other imbalances is this notion that you can use the eight dynamics the eight urges towards survival and have, you know, vote across them. So if you want to resolve a situation, you decide whether it's good for you, first dynamic, good for your family and your sex life, second dynamic, good for the groups you belong to, good for mankind, good for matter, energy, space and time, good for the spiritual unit and so on, up to the eighth dynamic, which is God. And I actually tried to do this thing where I got former members and we got a dozen of us in the room and I wanted to have a conversation about the principles. Did they work? Were they useful? And I started with the eight dynamics and I said, well, we'll start from my left going around the room and everybody can tell us the time when they've used the eight dynamics to resolve a problem. Now, between us, we had about 200 years in Scientology in that room. Nobody had ever used the eight dynamics to resolve a problem. That was very interesting. And you then go through it and you go, well, so it's good for seven dynamics, but God doesn't like it. Nah, that's not going to work, is it? You know, this, and my one vote is worth as much as the fourth dynamic, which is all of mankind. Uh, it's not a way of resolving anything. It's an attempt. Um, Perry Chapdelaine, who co-wrote the Dynetic Axioms, he said Hubbard turned up one night with a bottle of scotch. And, and said, we need to make this look like science. And so you get this, has anybody ever read the Dianetic Axioms? You know, <laughs> Lambda and Theta yeah. and, and this, that, and the other. That it's just an attempt to make something look scientific. As there was actually no research behind any of this, there's, yeah. you know, the only attempt to prove Dianetics was in the Los Angeles Foundation in 5051. And they did. Hubbard talks about it in Science of Survival. They knocked somebody unconscious to see if they could recover an engram. They no way. Really? And they mm -hmm. failed to recover anything. So, And that's it. That was the only actual piece of research done, to, to my knowledge, in you know all these many years of bullshit that, that Hubbard poured forth. Yeah. Um, what do you make of, again, an interesting contradiction? Between the fact that he does seem to have just made up so much of it, and then uh, you know lied about the research and all this and uh, all this kind of stuff, that on the one hand, and on the other hand, the fact that he very clearly seemed to at least eventually believe all of this bullshit he was making up. He he. It depended whether there was an hour in the month, or, or whether it was Wednesday. Some days he absolutely did not believe. 
So, for example, at the end of 1950, when he starts working on Science of Survival, he's living in L.A. with a, a woman called Barbara Snader, Barbara Cloden, who will later go on to become a psychologist. And in an interview, she says that he spent most of his time lying in bed, drinking a bottle of whiskey a day, and complaining that he had no new ideas and nothing to say. And uh, Richard DeMille, who took him on from there, they went to Cuba together, where he drank a bottle of rum a day. You know, you've got to get your medicine levels right. Um, he actually wrote Science of Survival for Hubbard. Um, from Hubbard's notes, from these peculiar little dictation discs, uh, little green discs, I have seen one of them along the way somewhere. Um, and DeMille put it all together and, and wrote the best book in Scientology, without doubt. Science of Survival is way ahead in terms of, you know, the ideas that are being put forward. And it, it's where I started because it doesn't have anything about past lives. It, it doesn't, it, it's a straightforward, you know, your attention units are stuck on things, let's do this. Um, but, but DeMille also, you know, Hubbard was, was miserable and depressed. At the end of his life, we're told in uh, Going Clear that um, Serge Fouth was asked to make an e-meter that would kill him because he believed he'd fail completely. Uh, and then somewhere in the middle of that, in around about 1970, aboard the, the Apollo, Mary Sue Hubbard got into a screaming match with Ron Hubbard, calling him a charlatan, saying, none of this works. You, you're just ripping people off. And so he said, what do I need to do to prove this? And she said, I've never been exterior with full perception. And he then got Otto Roast to run. He was told to run every exteriorization process. And there are about 90 of them. And after a couple of weeks, Mary Sue Hubbard just went, I, I can't do any more of this. Stop it. So he was always faced with this idea that, that what he was doing was, was bogus. Then you have stories from behind the scenes. Uh, so... Yeah, the most harassed uh, person for Scientology was Elron Hubbard Jr., Nibs Hubbard, who spent seven years as his father's immediate deputy. And he talked about giving these advanced clinical courses, which they do twice a year because that's where the money came from, $500 a pop. And his dad would sit him in the hotel room and he'd say, do you think we can make them do this? And that's how you get TR8, which was Nibs, he wrote it, um, yelling yeah. at ashtrays and making sure mm -hmm. they stay in their place, you know. Um, so I think the dynamic is really strange with Hubbard. I think there are times when he really believed he was, as OT8 and the old power processors say, the source of the universe, the demiurge, the creator god. I think there were days when he was so high that he thought that was true. But there were other days, because he was somewhat bipolar, when he realized that that he was a scam artist and you know <clears throat> different ends of the spectrum of his own feelings from one day to, to another so like even mary sue saying to him i've never been exterior with full perception and ron responding by asking otto to run all the exteriorization processes on her to me indicates that he thought those processes would actually make her go exterior with full perception or that he himself believes he had been exterior with full perception. Well, that's that's, that's one of the Scientology, yeah. The, the, in February 1938, he has his wisdom teeth extracted. He's on nitrous oxide, which is notorious. In the 19th century, there are nitrous oxide cults. Um, he, he has that. He thinks he he's told, he says, that he was dead for eight minutes. Uh, and he saw what he uses the word smorgasbord because the word buffet is too simple but a smorgasbord of knowledge was laid out before him and then somebody says no he's he's not ready yet send him back that was his as far as i can tell from everything i've read over the what, 48 years that i've since i first met the man's ideas from everything i've read that's the only time that hubbard believed he was exterior and he took all sorts of drugs after that there's no doubt about that he admits it in as a lecture where he talks about phenobarbital and having become a guinea pig in an experiment to get off addiction to phenobarbital. So that's him. He, of course, recommended amphetamines in vast quantities. If you have to grab hold of anything, grab hold of, of uh, Benzedrine. Um, we also think he used Demerol, uh, uh, which is a form of heroin, basically. Um, 
so he's getting high he's got he may well have had temporal lobe epilepsy i've got a piece coming out with yuval Laor about that um and we've had a neuroscientist who's looked at it who studied hubbard in great detail and is aware of this and said well yeah this does sound very plausible and that puts us in a very different place if Elrond hubbard was psychiatrically ill then scientology is the world the universe of Elrond hubbard and it's a mad universe it's a universe where after three days whatever gain you've made will go because you're a potential trouble source well that's the normal time of remission after faith healing you know people get up out of their wheelchairs and walk for three days and then they fall down again after three days hubbard was on you know every six months he was saying i've now found the answer and then it'd be like no i've now found the answer the simple things like in uh, 51 he banned the original dynetic technique because it's hypnotic it's right mm -hmm. there in print him saying you shouldn't do this i pulled together that and a lot of other things in a paper called never believe a hypnotist um, which is a hubbard quote from science of survival and he claimed to have been a hypnotist from the age of 16. So you get into this situation where this man who is ill, mentally ill, is projecting outward his desperate need for a cure. And he's never cured. He's all of the things that he lists in Dianetics, you know, short-sightedness, bursitis in his right shoulder, where the bursa is not um, lubricating the, the muscle bone joint properly um terror stomach which he talked about all of the things that he started out with and claimed to have cured with dianetics he still suffered from at the end of his life so an exteriorization is that's the total goal of scientology really that's all they've got you want to be out of your head you want to be out of your mind well there are those of us that don't think that's a good idea you know being out of your head be <laughs> three feet back of your head why why is that a good thing to do and <laughs> have you ever met anybody who could prove that they've done it? Because I haven't. Uh, 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 no, I, and I've never met a Scientologist who has ever convinced. Who, first of all, I've met tons of Scientologists who say they've gone exterior. Mm -hmm. Not one of them have ever convinced me that they were telling the truth. Well, um, and it's the exterior that's called depersonalization by psychiatrists, feeling as if you're outside of your body, as opposed to being able to perceive things outside of your body, you know, go to another planet. That's right. And how that's much right. of that's just dissociation is hard to say. Well, see. that's right. Any Scientologist who has ever told me they've gone exterior, this, that, or the other thing, and I've asked them any questions about it whatsoever, it became very obvious they were talking about a feeling they were talking about a sensation. They were not talking about literally looking down on themselves or having any particular awareness at all. It is hard to overstate the importance exteriorization and the belief in exteriorization plays in Scientology. In some respects, it's the glue holding everything together. I was always very uh, preoccupied with the fact that I've never gone, had never gone exterior, never have, never had the sensation. And I was, it was something I was, I was somewhat infatuated with. Like I just, re, it was, I was a little embarrassed. I'd never felt that way or had that. And everyone around me is talking about, you know, casually mentioning this thing as it's, it's just as common as eating eggs in the morning. I mean, Hubbard talks about it. Like it's, li it's literally the goal of auditing is to get you in a position where you can exteriorize at will. Yeah. Now, you might also ask the question where, well, if you got to that point, why would you even want to be back in the body? I don't, you know, big gives other questions. But um, look, I, I, I'm specifically thinking of a Scientologist I knew who joined later in life. He was literally a nuclear scientist. Hmm. He was had advanced degrees. He was wealthy. This is not a dumb guy. Hmm. He probably didn't get into Scientology until he was in his 40s. He was telling me a story of he went to flag to do his L rundowns and he exteriorized and da, da, da. and then he literally couldn't stand up straight walking from the auditing room to the examiner. He would kept falling against the wall and he was laughing. Scientologists call it line charging, just uncontrollably laughing, you know, just out of his head, just exhilarated. And, you know, you try to, as I say that now, I'm like, wow, that, that sounds like a little, a little bout of temporary insanity, if you ask me. And yet, if I were to hear, as I'm hearing the story, I'm like, I only wish I could experience that. 
you if if if, if you can give me a, a drug that'll make me feel that way, I, I would take that in a second. I would love to know what that feels like. Scientology auditing never did it for me. And I do sort of wonder how much of like, do we believe that guy? He believes he believes himself. Whatever he experienced, and I realized just because you think something's true doesn't make it true. Like, I understand this. His perception of what he experienced was so powerful. I'm, I'm pretty sure that guy's still in Scientology. He's probably pursuing the permanent state of whatever he thinks he experienced in that moment. Yeah. Um, I have a friend lives here in Clearwater. His name's Eve Martin, still in Scientology. He's one of the guys who spied on me for the church and made sure I got expelled. Um, I've had conversations with him when I, you know, this is part of his spying on me. He would have conversations with me just to see how deep I would go into enemy lines so he could report me to the church. And in these conversations, he made it he made it clear on when he was doing the purification rundown, when he was in the sauna, he went exterior. Mm -hmm. And just one one time that that was probably 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And he goes, just because of that one incident, there's nothing anybody could tell me about Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard or David Miscavige that would ever make me not continue pursuing Scientology. Even if you tell me that there's no OT nine and 10 or any of this, I couldn't care. Even if you told me I had to give up my children, I wouldn't care because once he, his words, once I had subjective reality that I was a Thetan and I could be independent of my body, nothing could ever be more important to me than pursuing that. Mm. I was like, again, that sounds simplistically stupid yeah and narcissistic in the extreme you're willing to abandon your own children i'm gonna have to skip off um oh yeah no worries no worries but, but i i want to do this again so um yeah let, let's let's pick this up another time let's <laughs> uh we'll, we'll close down for today and uh it's been an incredible pleasure meeting you at last you as well <laughs> hi john here Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps, and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. Or you can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.